0: Welcome to a special feature on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast. We are looking back at the 1990 Sunbank 24 hours of Daytona. Won overall by the TWR Jaguar team, placed first and second. So who better to help us look back on this 30-year anniversary than the team manager of this operation, good and old friend of mine, Tony Dow, spoke with Tony... From his new native land, born in the UK, lived in America for a long time, but he has been down under in Australia for many years now. Spoke with Tony about the race, his usual insights, funny character, straightforward character. So we set a lot of the stage with Tony. Then we move on to one of the winning drivers from the event. Another dear friend, Davy Jones, I've actually had the pleasure of being his race engineer for one day a while ago, that was pretty amazing. Had great time with Davey who brought some fun tales about this victory where he, Ian Lammers, Andy Wallace took the number 61 Jaguar XJR 12D V12 powered in the beautiful colors of Castrol on Goodyear tires to victory lane right behind them. The sister number 60 entry, Cobb, John Nielsen, and our third and final guest, Martin Brundle. So connected with Martin in a call here recently, sharing some of his memories, not only about the Rolex 24, and as you'll hear mentioned probably in a couple places, it was an amazing year for TWR, both USA and UK, starting off with a victory, a 1-2 in Daytona, and then a 1-2, the 24 Hours of Le Mans, which Martin happened to win. So... I left that part in. Some unique aspects to this race as well. I'll let them tell you about the majority of them. But this really was a groundbreaking event for how all future Rolex 24s at Daytona, including the one kicking off this weekend in a matter of hours, has been run. They set the blueprint in 1990. We get into that here on our little podcast brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. And if this is your first time listening, please check out marshallpruettpodcast.com, where we have 700-plus past episodes and every method conceivable to subscribe. All right, let's get rolling with our pals. Winners, 30 years ago, in Daytona, across 24 hours of racing, those glorious V12-powered Jaguar XJR-12Ds. Tony Dow. I always enjoy our conversations about days that were very fond for you and I. You in particular, as the team manager of Tom Walkinshaw Racing in the USA, Valparaiso, Indiana. We are at another milestone, my friend. The 1990, looking back 30 years ago, 1990, Sunbank 24 at Daytona, a delightful one-two finish for the TWR Jaguar effort with those XJR-12Ds. Before we get to the event, the drivers, the cars, the everything, maybe we should go back a year or two and talk about how the team came in, barnstormed in 1988, won the race with those Dunlop shod Jaguars, what happened coming into 89 and then into 90 uh, with the vehicles in terms of development, Tony, uh, and also that change well, in car manufacture?
1: The 89 was a little bit um, uh, problematical because we were in the process of trying to build and develop and so on the, uh, the tur- V6 turbo car. And so the budgets were going turbo rather than the V12. Um, ha- having said that, one of the things we always made a big effort at Daytona, it was fairly obvious right from the beginning that um, while we were racing a car that fitted the IMSA rules, we weren't racing a car that was built to win an IMSA. And, I, you know, a lot of people... Um, within my world might take exception to that. But when you looked at what Nissan were able to do with turbos and downforce and uh, and the tyres they were running, um, it made it very hard. So when you have a an endurance race, um, we were, as a team, able to have really good drivers and really good teamwork. Um, and that's not putting anybody any other team down, but we did put a big effort into that and in nineteen eighty nine very early in the race, one of the cars got hit in the side, and the oil cooler uh broke away from the mounting in the in the sidebar but because it's you know it was a big t w r thing never lift the engine cover. Um, all we knew was we had a high oil temperature. So the whole race, we were nursing the car and we finished up second. Um, and it wasn't until after the race, we lifted the engine cover and found the oil cooler was lying flat on its side and hence not doing anything. So that, that was a disappointing Daytona in 89. Um, you know, it's one that got away. Um, and so when we got over the turbo, um, introduction and so on, we were able to put uh, and, and by the time we got to 1990, we did have a really good bunch of guys, you know, it takes a bit of time to, to shuffle the pieces around and, uh, get there, but there was some really, really. You know, it was a world class team by the time we got to 1990. Yeah. And, uh, you know, back in Valparaiso, um, everybody was very up for, you know, beating Nissan in Nissan in essence. And uh, guys would go into the gym, uh, lunch, I would go at lunchtime, but uh, um, Ian Reed, the uh, chief engineer, he managed to break a couple of. Uh, running machines at the local gym just by pounding away at it. <laughs> um, you know, uh, and then, you know the team was really good. Um, no question. And the driver drivers were all pretty known and knew what 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 we needed and so on like that. So, yeah, it was uh, it was a good good team.
0: And you mentioned an important part about developing the next generation car, the uh turbo v6 powered jag coming into the 1990 race we had a dynamic where turbos really were at a fully developed stage Uh, i think there was there might have been a spice chevy v8 in there or you know there might have been one or two oddities still relying on naturally aspirated engines but if you look at the entry list in GTP, of course, there was the battalion of Porsche 962s, albeit, you know, those were a bit past their sell-by date. But certainly, as we know, entering into an endurance race could not count those out. But we had Nissan, obviously, with uh, coming out with their turbo GTP ZXTs. Uh, we had Gurney there. We had the All-American Racers team uh, coming out with their... HF89 Toyota Turbo as well. So for the TWR team, it still was a little bit of a a holdover technology-wise, and yet I have to believe that the car, this development of a development of a development, the XJR12D, Tony, was something that fit nicely between, say, the aged Porsche 962s and maybe the more cutting-edge Turbocharged GTP cars that maybe were a bit more fragile. Do you recall it being that way?
1: One of the the, the car that potentially could have given us a lot harder race was the um, the black um, Texaco car with smiling Bob Wallack in. Yeah, we always felt the Nissan V six was going to be fragile over ten twelve hours which proved to be the case. Um, I mean, they only managed to win when they used the, the Group C car. Um, you know, they, they could do 12 hours at Sebring, but after that, they became fairly marginal. Um, so from our point of view, once once Bob was out with his car, we were racing ourselves the whole way. And we're, there, there is some awesome film of Brundle and Lama's you know swapping positions on the banking coming out of uh, uh nascar one and two and uh you know i had to get on the uh on the phone and say look guys you know we're, we're only five hours into this race you know we need to to keep our heads
0: on so looking at qualifying there was a definite display in technological difference we had that bayside racing bruce levin's beautiful black Texaco Haviland-sponsored Porsche 962, Bob Wallach, Cheryl Vandemirva, Dominic Dobson in that machine. Qualified at a 137.8. Got to move down to ninth on the grid to find our first TWR Jaguar. That was the number 60 entry, Price Cobb, John Nielsen, Martin Brundle at a 140.3. So just in qualifying, We are the better part of three seconds off of poll time. What do you, and the the sister, the uh, 61 entry of David Jones, Ian Lammers, Andy Wallace uh, was directly behind uh, almost, uh, you know, very similar time. What do you recall coming out of, or going into and coming out of qualifying, Tony, mindset-wise? Was there any effort? I know there wasn't a turbo to dial up, but was there any effort to try and go and attack, or did you just write no, that off that qualifying time session at all?
1: Time. Yeah, that lap time was our race time. That that qualifying time was what we could race at. I mean, that, that was um, you know pretty pretty much uh, where we were going to be. So we were never we weren't sweating. First of all, we knew we had better fuel. You know, with, with the uh, turbo cars to do lap time. They had to dial it up, and uh, they were using fuel like bucket loads. People like Drino hadn't, hadn't got into the rocket fuel yet, and uh, they, it was all coming out of the same pump at Daytona. Um, but um, when, uh, uh, when we did that, our qualifying time was just the driver cinching up the belts a little bit tighter, and so we were we were pretty happy with where we were going to be in
0: the race. So as we move into the race, have the two rather stellar lineups uh, in the sixty and the sixty one cars. And as you mentioned, we had the uh, the Wallach Bayside Porsche on pole. Knew that they had the certainly had the ability, Tony, to uh, stay up front and run up front if they wanted to. Nissan's were quick, second place, Derek Daly, Bob Earl, Chip Robinson, Jeff Brabham. Uh, Brun was up there with a Porsche with Leraria and company, another Nissan, a couple of Porsches as well. I mean, it seemed like we're talking about a, a pretty straightforward Jaguar versus Porsche versus Nissan fight. How do you remember the early hours of the race playing out with the aforementioned note that Wallach? seemed to tangle right away. What was your team's strategy to try and move forward?
1: Well, we were just going to... The two cars pretty much raced each other the whole race, and um, we weren't worried about um, any of the other teams. As I say, the only team that uh, thought would give us uh, problems after the eighteen-hour mark was going to be the the Bayside car, and, and that never happened. I mean, you always knew which car was getting the favour when you saw which team Allwin Springer was hanging around. So um, you know, Bayside was going to be the one, and then they they dropped the ball early on. So it, it was a non non-event from that point of view.
0: Looking at how the race ended, huh? <laughs> A race of attrition for sure. So if you go back to qualifying, as you would expect, the the head of the grid is dominated by GTP cars, right? So, I mean, I believe genuinely the first, uh, what, 15 to 16 positions are all GTP cars. Um, you then take a look at the final results. And if you knew nothing about the race, you'd understand very quickly that it was not an easy one, knowing how the class-winning IMSA GTO entry from Jack Roush, Lincoln Mercury Cougar XR7, finished fifth overall. So uh, from 15 GTP cars leading, we were down to four uh, up front, uh, by the time we got to the finish line. What do you remember in terms of that attrition in any of the uh, the fun, I guess, fun you were trying to avoid because you really didn't want to have fun during the race?
1: If you go back and look, we actually had to cool it for the last two and a half hours because the cars were out of water, uh, both of them. And uh, I, I had to really get... get uh, Up with Ian Reed. He was he was in second place and he was trying to win it, and uh, he was totally dehydrated and doing. <laughs> he was <laughs> trying to gain time in pit stops and stuff like that. And I, you know, I had to step in and say, "Whoa, well, that's the finishing order. That's the way we're going to be." Because both cars were, were you know, if if there'd been a Porsche there to push us, we would have been in trouble. Um, you know, good good learning lessons.
0: The lineup here, too, in particular, is one uh, to enjoy, knowing that there was among your uh, the six drivers in play, you did have one American, and he did happen to come home in the race-winning car, the 61 XJR 12D, that being Davy Jones with his good friend and regular teammate Ian Lammers and just the always, the understated but awesome Andy Wallace. Do you recall any acrimony from Ian or others when you decided to say, hey, the order we're running is the order we finish? Uh, Was there any sentiment that, all right, good old Mr. Red, White, and Blue driver gets to also be part of the winning team? Curious if there's anything there.
1: No, it was... uh... Um, uh, you know we'd run at a, a really hard pace the whole race and kept out of trouble and every it, it was a very very good team and uh, you know uh, wasn't a um, uh, any visible acrimony um, uh, slight aside every year in March when the F1 comes to town here I go and have dinner with Brundle um, on the Wednesday night when he flies in, so he's always a bit shattered. And um, Alan Scott, the engine guy, comes over from New Zealand, and we sit down and tell war stories. Um, last year, Danny Sullivan joined us, and I was quite surprised after a bottle of good bottle of red that Brundle was uh, was quite vocal about uh, his thoughts on some of his. Um, teammates but that was 29 years further on so uh, as I say it uh, it opened my eyes a bit uh, that, that far down road but at the time nah, it was nothing you know always in the background right, stood right behind me was Tom and nobody was going to headbutt you know those decisions
0: I guess another thing to mention here in this victory Tony is what it meant in terms of the TWR legacy, right? Uh, in terms of wins, uh, this nineteen ninety race adding into all that had been achieved. For example, uh, with um, that Le Mans, such uh, although titles weren't there, there was you know an immense number of wins uh, in IMSA and Europe as well. What do you remember? Uh, in terms of the TWR effort, in terms of it being a winning thing, overall winning thing, and a bit of a swan song uh, with this 1990 well, victory?
1: Don't, don't forget, I mean, we, we carried on winning races in 1990 with a turbo car. We won five races. Um, you know, I mean, that was why Davy was in the winning car, because he needed the points. We knew that it would be a tough year against Nissan. So you know that the, the arrival at uh, the very first year in '88, I was gobsmacked when I was told that Brundle and uh, Nielsen had to be in the winning car, and uh, and Davy was in wasn't in the winning car, uh, and it was like, well, hold on, but we're trying to win a championship, and and the hierarchy back in Kidlington hadn't got their mind wrapped around winning championships at that time. So that that was one of the, the thing, you know, 1990 was a good year when every all the bits in the States came together the right way.
0: So looking back, as we seem to do on a frequent basis, my friend, 30 years ago, fond memories, what comes to mind of uh, the beautiful castoral Green, red, and white Jags winning in Florida.
1: Uh, it might sound arrogant, but you know I would have been disappointed if we hadn't got one too. Because we'd done done the hard yards um, the, the previous year, and we had really good people, and we had good planning, and uh, we executed. So from that point of view. Um, you know, it wasn't a surprise that we, we, we achieved.
0: Doesn't feel like 30 years ago to me, Davey. Does it feel like 30 years ago to you?
2: No, it doesn't. It feels like, uh, like just, you know, last year. <laughs> um, you know, I got to tell you, Marshall, that, uh, five years ago, they brought over the winning car that hadn't been back to the States since, uh, since it won the race in 1990. And uh, they put it up for auction in Amelia Island. And I had a chance to drive the car, do a little promo prior to, it went for auction, RM auction, um, at Daytona just before the start of the 24 hours.
0: I remember. I was there. I remember.
2: And, I mean, you, you get in the car. And it was like yesterday, uh, honestly, the, the car, you felt like you could just, you know, just get right in and, and just, you know, uh, do a race with the car. And, and, and I honestly feel that if you had today's tech, some of today's technology built into that exact same car, you know, given electronics, given the advancement of, of the tire compounds and sidewalls and so on, that car would probably still be very competitive. Didn't you?
0: Have your old fire suit and you still fit in it, or something like that? That makes me hate you even more.
2: Did you notice my voice was a little squeaky? Yeah, <laughs> uh, I was. I was even surprised. I, I, uh, I, you know, I went back into the closet and, and uh, you know, I found the, uh, the the fire suit and the the, the shoes and, the, you know, the the helmet and the hat and everything, and, and uh, it all fit. So,
0: so this was a. Rather magical year for Jaguars, a brand for the TWR organization, both UK and US, uh, with this dual victory. Right, open the year with the 24 Hours of Daytona victory, a one-two, then go one-two at the 24 Hours of Le Mans, in June. Let's focus on the opening of that account here in IMSA's season opener. What do you recall? Of this event, coming into it with you, the 61 entry, the winning car yourself, your good pal, crazy, Yan Lammers. And I'd say he might be British and folks might think he's boring. No, there's a little bit of a nut job there as well. And Andy Wallace, what comes to mind about this trio rolling into the 1990 race after Jim Busby won the 89 race in that beautiful Miller 962
2: well you you go to daytona just knowing that uh you know that you have the team in every way you got all the support the surroundings uh, and uh you know to to win that race and it it was ours to lose uh you know the the 962 porsches have been so dominant for so many years and you know we knew that uh with the xjr12 that that was our, that was our mule. That was our workhorse. Um, you know, we, we opted to go with the V12 just because it's, it's bulletproof, um, reliable. And, and, uh, you know, when you go into a race weekend knowing that, that, you know, that you got the best of the best, uh, you know, it sets that mindset straight out.
0: So you have this well-drilled team car that is highly developed as well. Interesting change, though, Davy. Coming into the nineteen ninety season, having worked with Dunlop's uh, tires previous couple of years, move over to Goodyear, and really seemed like it opened up some new performance capabilities. What do you recall of that move to Goodyear and what it did for you?
2: It settled the whole car down. Uh, you know the Dunlop tires. You know we had good tires. We had mediocre tires. Uh, we knew the tires that we received from Japan were, were, uh, were okay tires. The tires that were received from the UK were better tires. Uh, but when we put the, you know, they had really super stiff sidewalls. Uh, when we put the good years on, you know, straight away, it settled the whole car down. The car wasn't as nervous. Uh, it allowed, you know, the, the whole tire, the, the sidewall, the, you know, the, the absorption, the grip, everything to work better and, and last longer for us.
0: So coming into the race, this is really the first year that I recall for the Rolex where we had all the new era turbo GTP entries trying, at least making a try to get after things, right? It wasn't a surprise year or two before where we would have, whether it was Nissan, no Toyota had come in, the gurney side with the uh, their Toyota Turbo, I think, a year before. But we often had some of these bigger uh, NPTI, the Electromotives, or even All-American Racers kind of sort of skip, right? The big 24-hour season opener, maybe even Sebring as well, thinking, yeah, there's no way we're going to get to the end with this car. Reliability isn't there. This is a year where everybody showed up and tried, not saying they all succeeded, but what do you remember from that as well, Davey? Knowing that it wasn't just TWR versus a bunch of Porsches, you actually had some of your regular full-season competitors show up and give it a go as well.
2: And, you know, we we had the XJR10 um, uh, that we, we developed with the uh, the V6 Twin Turbo, and and, you know, the car was good. It was fast. But we knew as far as endurance racing, uh, you know, because IMSA went to the format where we went to the, uh, you know, the single driver kind of sprint races, um, which the, you know, the turbo V6 uh, was was great for that. Uh, but, you know, we always thought going into the endurance races, uh, Daytona Sebring, that we would use the V12 um, just because of the reliability side of it. Um, And
0: that was a flexibility that TWR had that, frankly, your rivals did not. They were all turbos, period. They didn't have naturally aspirated V anything to bolt into their cars.
2: You know, prior to, you know, in the years past, prior to the 24-hour races, you know, I know that we... You know, we've broken some valve springs in the V twelve and we've had to reduce our RPM a little bit, uh, you know, uh to 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 make the engine survive, but and it sounded horrible like it was gonna blow up any second, but it just kept kept going. Was it was not an issue. So, you know, the, going into nineteen ninety, I think, you know, TWR, they had a stellar, you know, driver lineup. They had, you know, really good uh car prep, uh great team. I think they were a little bit of ahead of the other teams in regards to we practiced pit stops. You know, we did some long run testing. Uh, they were they were they were thinking ahead if they had an overheating issue because the radiator was up front and it collects a lot of uh, rubber from the track and and it, you know it's aerodynamically it's probably a little bit smaller radiator to fit in there nicely. Um, they knew that if if we had any heating issues, if they had a system that they could depressurize and add water, um, to the hot engine, uh, within just seconds, um, which we had to end up using towards the end of the race. Um, so they, they were really, uh, you know, they were, it was well thought out, well planned Tony Dow, you know, he, he's a mastermind at that. And, and he and Reed, you know, um, I think the two of them just, just gave us, you know, really, um, really, you know, well capable, Uh, team that just just uh, did what they had to do
0: so the bruce levin bayside racing porsche 962 fairly well developed even though that general chassis model and and concept was a bit old by then but they're fastest on pole dial up the turbo and and, you know super rocket fast they had some issues a little bit early in the race that knocked them back But it really stands out, Davey, and maybe you can share some insights on this. Seemed like pretty quickly, after the first couple hours, it really became a uh, number 61 Jag XJR 12 with you, Yan, and Andy versus the 60 car, Price Cobb, John Nielsen, and Martin Brundle. Almost felt like it just became the TWR USA 24 hours of Daytona, and it was going to be settled between the two of you. Tell us about that and also the ragged pace. Uh, I don't want to say dangerous pace, but you guys were not sitting around biding your time.
2: You know, funny you should say the U.S. team versus the U.K. team. There probably was a little bit of that uh, that played in there. Uh, but, you know, when you when you take um, Jan Lambert and Andy Wallace and myself, you know, all three of us could could we could do the exact same lap time, lap after lap after lap um you know we all three of us pretty much sit in the same seating position you know it didn't take long to do a driver change um we all you know we all nursed the car we all looked after the car you know we always said to ourselves you know every time that one of us drivers gets into that car we want that car to think it's the same driver um you know making the same moves um so you know as a three of us a three oh i think it was just a stellar team um regarding the, the race pace you know, we didn't have the opportunity to really, like you said, turn up the boost and go for an all-out qualifying run to, to, to be on the front row. Um, you know, we, we had what we had. You know, all you can do for qualifying is put new rubber on and, and uh, lighter fuel tanks and maybe trim it out a little bit and, and, and piece together your best lap. So, you know, it's either you're going to go there, you're going to qualify up front, or you're going to qualify – You know somewhere in the in the top 10 is where you want to be um and then after the race settles out after the first hour or two generally you're you're you know you're setting the race pace that you want so you know they go out and they they go out set qualifying times and put these stellar paces you know laps together we we just continued our same pace from when we arrived uh for you know for first practice all the way through to the race end um, you know, and, and we just focused on that. The, um, you know, I always, I always look at these long endurance races, you know, you get, you get a car that's super fast in the beginning and it's, it's, it's setting its own pace and everybody's trying to catch up with that car. And you think like, you know, the first couple hours you think like, oh, you know, nobody's going to beat this car, they're, they're way out front and so on. And then you get through the middle of the night or you get the next morning, and they're nowhere to be seen. All of a sudden, the car that was started the race in mid-pack, they're up front, and they're setting the pace, and everybody's trying to hang with them. So it's, uh, you know, back then in 1990, that's when, uh, you know, that's when it was just starting to make the turn from let's just cruise around, and let's just get through the night, and let's, you know, once we get into the morning, Sunday morning, then we can start setting our pace well 1990 it started to come together where each hour was almost like a sprint race you know it was like you're you know which which it is today i mean the 24 hours of daytona and le mans today um i mean it's just every lap is like a qualifying lap and and uh, the cars are reliable now uh you know they're finishing within seconds of each other after 24 hours of running so um you know it's it's been good to follow and to watch uh, but even though, you know, you look at the lap times now, you know they're running what a Daytona one thirty sevens, one thirty sixes, one thirty fours maybe. Um, I'm sorry, they're running about one one thirty fours, one thirty three in there. So you know, to think thirty years back, they were still. I mean, the well, the pole time I think was like one thirty seven and we were like we were running 143s in the race. Um so it's not really that much of a difference in in uh, you know time fast forwarding 30 years. You know the tracks all lit up now, you know the uh you know technology has been improved.
0: And think about that Davey from a pace standpoint and this is the thing I'm writing about and I've mentioned to our other guests in this episode looking back celebrating this amazing 1990 event this was the jump off point where we're not it's not as if we're abusing the car and and being silly but we're not holding back we're not doing the well we're afraid of this that and the other we're gonna push and there's a lot of thought put into this a lot of effort put into this to prepare the cars to handle it uh to make you know qu- whether it was a quick brake change or otherwise if those were consumed but a lot of effort put into being able to get maximum performance out of the car for the entire race compared to partial performance out of it for the majority. And then if you still had it push hard the last couple of hours to see if you could win. So what do you recall from a physical standpoint as well? Uh, It's not as if you had the radiators in the back of the car, um, front mounted radiator was also a pretty toasty event too.
2: Um, you had to be fit, right? And, you know, at 25 years old, I think I, I was pretty fit. Um, you know, it's, 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 it was, um, you know, looking back, you know, between the Lambert, Andy Wallace and I, the, the three of us, we didn't have any issues as far as, um you know, uh being able to do a double stint in the car and in heat exhaustion and things like that. You know, TWR also had we had a trainer there. Um, you know, so with having a physiotherapist as part of the team and making sure that we're on the bike and we're warming up before we get in the car to get our heart rate up, uh that we're eating the right foods uh prior to the race weekend and during the race. You know, keeping our fluids in, all that stuff was kind of on the forefront of what, what what they go through today. I mean today, you know, that's such a big part of it. Um and I also have to say is that, you know, when the car when you're leading and when you're out front um and you're setting the pace, it's easy. You know, it's it's a lot harder when you're when you're behind trying to catch up or trying, you know, trying to stay uh, on, on, you know, keep up with a certain pace. But when you can get out front and you can keep the keep the pace and you're in control, it's, it's a lot easier. Um, and the car works so well. Uh, you know, we we don't really – I don't recall any issues, major issues that we had during the whole race, um, you know, where, where we were put, put back at all behind. Um, you know, when we finished the race, you know, it was – you know, you felt like the car could have gone another twenty-four hours.
0: Yeah, I mean, other than I think a little brake item, or I don't know, might have been brake lights as well. I mean, whatever it was, there was some relatively minor.
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, they had they had a situation to where if you don't, if you didn't have any brake lights, uh, they would black flag you, which is what we had, and and uh, you know, fortunately, you know, we were prepared for it, and and uh, you know. Uh, it was a, it was a silly little infraction, but understandable at the same time. You know, at TWR they also you know made it uh, r- really kind of easy for us to change rotors and pads on the brakes. Which <clears throat> I don't remember exactly what it was they did, but it was something where they could just pull the whole brake assembly off and just pop on a new one. Uh, you know, and and, and you got to think that when we come in to change rotors and pads. I mean, these guys are wearing like Nomex welding gloves, you yeah. know,
1: and,
2: yeah. and you know, really thick welding gloves because those brake discs are so hot. And they were able to just really uh, cut down on the time and, and the, 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 the the you know the, the rotor change that we had to do during the race. Um, so they they uh, they simplified things the best that we can. And you got to remember, we were dealing with a with a Hewland transmission that was you know that was a uh, want well, to say it was a five speed H pattern you know, and, and, uh, you know, and you had the clutch and, uh, it was, it was old school, you know, now you've got, you know, you got paddle shift and, you know, everything's electronic shifting and, you know, you don't use the, the clutch only when you, you know, leave the pits now, (laughs) you know, it's
0: different time, my
2: friend. It's a different time, but still, I mean, the physical side of it, you know, you're, you're setting, you're setting a really quick pace.
0: Let's close Davey on the, uh, the final hours where there were some lead changes between your 61 entry and the number 60 Jag. They ended up having some deeper problems, more time consuming problems that helped, uh, seal the win for your entry. What do you recall those final hours? And what do you recall, uh, about winning the 24 hours of Daytona man, the, uh, Country's most prestigious long form endurance race. Uh, before we get to Sebring,
2: well, it was certainly uh, you know it was certainly one of those races that you you know you're happy to win and have it behind you, uh, but you know as 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 all drivers, you know it's it's like you know your your focus is so into your job and what you're doing that that when you win, you know you feel like. You know, you just completed, you know, you did the best that you can and what you had to do as part of a team. Um, so it was really, it was a team effort. And, uh, you know, it's like we won this now let's move on to Sebring. You know, you just, you just put your mindset to the next race right away. But in those closing laps, um, I mean, it, it was, it was a situation to where the 60 car was pushing hard. They were pushing really hard to, to, uh, to, to, to win this race. And, and, uh, it was game on between, you know, the two TWR cars and, and uh, it was unfortunate that they had their problems, uh, which, which gave us a bit of breathing room, but, um, but it makes for good racing.
0: This is well, Davy. if we're just looking back in general on your career, 24 hours of Daytona, you would go on and add victory at the 24 hours of Lamal in 1996. There's this, uh, Little race, some folks might have heard of called the Indianapolis five hundred didn't win it did finish second though started second, finished second I mean in same year as well nineteen ninety six this among all the wins, all the victories, all the everything in your career I mean this at least until you got to Lamont to add that, I'm guessing. This uh, Daytona victory might have stood out as uh, really among the finest, if not the finest, of your career?
2: I, I would say so, Marshall. I mean, you know, you, you tell people about the 24-Hours Daytona, they, 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 their eyes look up, you know. It's, it's because it is quite an achievement to, to win this race. And I think most important is to, to win the, uh, the Rolex watch, you know. Having that watch, something that you can wear, you know, that's a trophy that that uh, that's with you all the time. Uh, it's not something that you just, you know, put on a shelf somewhere. Um, so, you know, it is it is a very special race um, as well as Le Mans. Le Mans is, uh, you know, it was it, you know, it was it was gratifying to win that. I, I didn't really realize, you know, it doesn't set in, you know, that you've won a race like Daytona or, or Le Mans uh, until weeks after to tell you the truth it's it's uh you know because you are so focused and you're just there to do a job and when you do your job and you, you do the best you can and you win it's like you've, you've, you've achieved it uh but then you when you look back and you say man that was that was a big deal that was quite something you know and the difference between L- winning le mans or i should say racing in le mans or racing at daytona Daytona is a really a physical race. I mean, it's, you've got a lot of, a lot of cars, every lap, your pass ins, the, the closing speeds are phenomenal. Um, you know, you got to really be on your game. You can't really relax, uh, maybe a little bit when you're on the oval, but then you've got that bump, you know, in, in, uh, in NASCAR, you know, three and four, uh, you know, see, so you still got to, you know, really be on your game. Where at Le Mans... You know, you've got the Molson straightaway. You, you know, this time to kind of just kind of sit back and re- rethink about what's going on and what the car is doing. You got the Indianapolis curve, the Porsche curves. You know, that's just all nice rhythm and it flows well. And and you know, you might do a lap at, at Le Mans and not not see another car, uh, unlike Daytona. So Daytona is definitely it's 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 a challenging race all around. It's it's hard on the car. It's hard on the driver. Um, you know, and you've got to be well-prepared. And, and in 1990, I think we were the best-prepared team there.
0: Let's finish on this, Davy. I don't know if you have any specific memories of post-race 1990 with this victory, but I do know from many of our previous conversations dating back a decade or more, when you and Lammers, at least, and I'm assuming Wallace as well, you guys would be awful hungry after a win, and you might go hit up a Burger King or who knows what and have <laughs> mustard and mayonnaise and ketchup or tomatoes running down your face. Any memories of winning the race? And I don't know if you're exhausted or hungry or what, but uh, if there's any kind of silliness with you and your co-drivers afterwards.
2: No, I think afterwards it was just eating whatever, eating and drinking whatever you can, you know, because we were on kind of one of these, you know, strict diets where, you know, you can only consume water and electrolytes. And, you know, back then we're eating pasta and, you know, buckwheat rolls and stuff like that, uh, you know, fig bars. And after you win a race like that, you just want to just, you know, have a beer and a pizza and just (laughs) cheeseburger with with onions. And, you know, it's like, like just, you know, just kind of make up for for being healthy for, for, for a few weeks. Um, you know, but, but one of the story that's kind of funny is, you know, Lamarus, he always, he always seeked out the ice cream shops wherever we were racing. And, uh, and, you know, and, and I wasn't sure if it was because he liked the scoops of ice cream or if it, because he liked the girls that were scooping it up. Oh, so. the, <laughs> I, I think
0: we know the answer with Lamarus, that guy. I tell you, he might've been about, three foot nothing but man uh that guy's confidence was about 10 feet tall
2: he was he was he always put he always put the charm on
0: uh davy thank you as always my friend it's always uh i always love when we have a reason a genuine reason not just to talk about the past but to talk about your achievements because they meant so much for me just watching as a, a kid coming up in the sport so uh, pretty fun to look back here and realize that although you're only a couple years older than me, you, know, you were representing the good old US of a pretty darn well, whether it was in sports cars or open wheels. So glad well, no, we can look you. back on this 30 year anniversary and realize, yep, you got to stand there and represent the US of a for TWR USA.
2: Yeah, it was, it was good. I mean, and you know, when, even now when, when, you know, when I mentioned to people that, uh, you know, they were the Bud Light Jaguars, the Castle Jaguars. They they remember that it was it was really a it was an icon uh, during that era of, of uh, sports cars, and and uh, I was proud to be a part of that team. And you know, it was it was it was good. And I, I just you know, if I if there was if I had one wish, if I had that magic bottle genie that came out and they granted me one wish, uh, the wish would be to do it all over again. Oh, just yeah. just you know I mean you know that it's just it's life you know knowing what you know now to be able to go back and and uh you know put that to good use but but you know it's like my dad always told me you know I went through the school of hard knocks
0: and you succeed you got a master's degree there as well so uh
2: <laughs>
0: davy yeah. thank you as always brother
2: you're so welcome have a wonderful weekend uh you know I look forward to uh, seen
0: uh, the excitement that the rolex 24 brings. so mr brundle we are at a lovely 30 year marker yourself price cobb john nielsen in the sister entry what comes to mind at this Thirty-year marker of having finished one-two at Daytona.
3: I hadn't realised. I hadn't thought about it being thirty years until you just mentioned it. To be honest, but I loved those days in IMSA um, with Tony Dow and Ian Reed and all the TWR uh, USA people. We, we just, you know, we got it done, and the car was fearsome. Um, I think the Daytona 24 Hours is unquestionably the hardest race I've ever done. Um, uh, at the how many times have I done it now? Three times, three or four times, and. It's just so physical, there's so much um dark uh night running uh the the physicality of the banking the the humidity and those jaguars with the with the big v twelves and manual shift and uh, and all of the challenges the bumps and the amount of traffic that that you had to encounter on each and every lap just made it mentally and physically incredibly hard i think there was i think we were all carrying some water issues some overheating issues towards the end and um if i remember correctly i've had a few hits on the head since then so i don't always (laughs) record these things properly but um the i think the sister car had a problem then we looked like we were gonna we were in great shape because they had we had to stop and i think pressure filled them with hot water or something to get otherwise it just got Spat straight back out again. So, um, yeah, it was, I think we had the race covered. And there was a point where I thought I was going to get my second Daytona victory, but we ended up finishing second.
0: And so the the truly remarkable aspect of this 1990 race, and as I've written about it uh, as a feature coming into this year's race, this 1990 event was the blueprint for what we know today in terms of race strategy. Uh, When the green flag waves on Saturday until the checkered falls on Sunday, fans are accustomed to maximum attack. This had never really been done before until 1990. I'm not saying that there was not a percent or two left uh, in reaching 100% in terms of pushing the vehicles, but the strategy employed here with these glorious naturally aspirated V12s, both the number 60 and 61, was to just set a pace that was punishing. And lo and behold, not only did it work, all your rivals fell. And that is really what stands out about this event is in terms of a shift of strategy, 1990 was really the first that stands out as we are going to push incredibly hard, see if anyone else can sustain, and they did not. What do you recall from, and also part of the, maybe this will come to mind as well, This was also your first uh, Rolex 24 on Goodyear's. And those Goodyear's, I seem to recall uh, some of your quotes and comments from the time about loving those. And all of a sudden the corners, cornering speed, became a very good friend and an ally in setting that blistering pace.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the Jaguar had a lot of downforce. And I think that's what was hurting the drivers on the banking um, was it 33 degrees there, if I remember correctly? I think 39 at Talladega, I then we 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 tested the cars there. But and I did IROC there. But um, it, it's a, it's a brutal race. But I think where that strategy, that philosophy came from was Le Mans, really, because I don't ever. I, I think 87 was my first sports car Le Mans. I don't ever remember doing a lap in a 24 hour race. That wasn't as fast as I could go, given the car, the tyres, the fuel load, the condition, uh, you know, track weather, whatever. Um, because somebody will go flat out and finish, so you all have to basically. And I, I, you know, I just never remember leaving any time on the table. You, you, the the key thing in sports car racing is, and I, I'm pretty sure talking to my lad Alex, it's still the same today, is traffic management and that was never more imperative than than a daytona because of the confines of the track i remember there was a i don't know if it was 88 or 90 there was a camaro that we seemed to lap about every three or four laps or something (laughs) remembering we we had venturi on the back of that jaguar you could live underneath it, it had you know it had such massive downforce and such a big plan area on the on the floor and the venturi's underneath that just stuck to the road. But and this this Camaro had thanks Wendy written on the back of it, and I used to catch it. always seemed to catch it in that left kink. What is that turn four or something like that? Yeah. Would it, would it be? yeah. yeah. The, the really quick left kink it didn't used to be completely flat out Yeah, you, you could take it flat out, but you had to, you had to get it absolutely right. And then you'd suddenly catch up uh, a car in the middle of it. And to this day, I wonder who Wendy was and what she actually did <laughs> to be thanked. to be thanked So in such a big way on the back of the car, but yeah, we did, we passed a lot of cars every lap, but no, you had to go for it. And, and we, we employed the same tactics at, a Le Moyne 88, um, and generally, especially if you've got a, a bit of an Armada, as we had back then, you know, three cars or five cars or whatever, but we had two in Daytona, and, you know, just go for it, basically. I, I don't think we, we left too much time on the table.
0: So looking at how this 1990 race started, we had Bayside Racing, beautiful black Haviland-sponsored aero-developed, mm. 962 driven by Bob Wallach, Cyril Vandamerva, and Dominic Dobson. They were on pole by a mile and it yeah. looked like they were going to be the pace setters in the race. They ended up having, uh, I believe, an oil line problem with their turbo a couple of hours in that set them back and really mm. derailed their race. But what do you recall from the early stages of the race in terms of competition uh, and possibly whether it's that Porsche? or any of the, the nissans and toyotas and such
3: bob was always really quick in those things but remember because the jaguar being normally aspirated it had it had nowhere to go in qualifying it had, we couldn't turn anything up we might give it a few more revs and close our eyes a bit longer into the braking area but there was really nowhere to go um so we were never going to be representative in, in qualifying in that respect um and honestly i'd have to go back and watch the race or read up about it or or um um you know to 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 remember i'm not even sure i could remember you know sometimes i have this conversation with david coulthard when we're travelling around you'll see a piece of footage uh, of a grand prix and neither of us remembers being in the race <laughs> <laughs> and then you quite clearly were because you, you you pop up on the tv screen and a, a lot of them sort of get blurred, so I'm going to have to rely on no, your no, no. fair enough, your wisdom and, and knowledge on on exact on exactly what happened. I probably should have read up about it before before you called me. Um, but you know, you whenever in that era, whenever you went racing, you really had to beat Porsche um, because their car was so reliable, was so fast. It that very lazy gear shift they had on that lovely long gear shift because I think we had synchromesh gearbox that was super reliable and you know you, you knew you had to be and you know a large number of Porsches and the privateer cars were every bit as good as as the works cars on, on a number of occasions or you know some were semi-works cars so you know that they, they that that was your that was your target back then before Mercedes rocked up on the scene in fact no Mercedes were in were in group c were not they so uh in in terms of They they were super quick uh, over there, but the Nissans and Toyotas and uh, all the stuff that came along, somehow Porsche were were relentlessly there.
0: Another interesting aspect of this as well is through 88, 89, on the GTP side, the Mm. Nissans in particular were fearsome, and yet the Sunbank 24 was not a race they often embraced for fears of concerns over reliability and whatnot. This was, this proved to be true yet again, as I believe all three, both the two factory cars and one privateer from Jim Busby had motor issues or a variety of issues, but they fell by the wayside. Dan Gurney with the new all American Eagle Toyota, uh, that fell by the wayside with uh, issues as well. Uh, I guess owing to the, just extreme pace that was being set as well. Fifty-five cars started the race. Martin, twenty-two finished. Only five yeah. were GTP. I mean, this was a brutal event for all. But uh, frankly, your two uh, TWR
3: entries—that's uh, strange about the Nissan, isn't it? That they that they struggle because I remember racing against Jeff Brabham in uh We had some epic fights in uh Sonoma I think uh what was it called back in the Sears day point. Uh, Sears Point of course um and but that car seemed to glide like a limousine and he had a lot of power a lot of downforce a lot of compliance in it so you would think it would have been perfectly suited wouldn't you for for a, a 24-hour race but it didn't it didn't seem to happen that way as you as you rightly point out um so clearly they were stressing it, you know. In in the IMSA races we did together, where Jeff was the man to be, um, it, it, it seemed fine, didn't it? But then uh, in the lo- in the longer events, it just didn't it just didn't seem to have the uh, I don't know the 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 staying power, the stamina that the, the big old V twelve Jaguar did.
0: So looking towards the end of the race, you you guys were leading in the number 60 and I believe had some form of brake issue that required a significant, uh, rotor change and whatnot, which ended up handing the lead over to your sister entry. Mm-hmm. Then, as you mentioned, there were the overheating issues, which I know the, yeah. the winning car, uh, ended up having to pit something like three or four times to try and address the overheating yeah. issue. But the, the yeah. main takeaway was the lead that had been built during the first 20 hours or so, was so great that you were frankly able to experience technical issues, pit multiple times to re- resolve them without handing back the lead. I don't know. That that sure sounds to me like a plan that definitely <laughs> worked when you can have issues and be sidelined and yet still recover and win by uh, five or six laps. So not a bad day. Yeah,
3: No, I think it was... The you know because it was so long legged that car it was you could take it to a sprint circuit like I'm thinking of the Le Mans car really as much as anything but take it to sprint circuit and it would feel a bit heavy and a bit clumsy but put it on the higher speed stuff and and or you know, it's like a plug and play at Le Mans and just worked beautifully and obviously we carried a bit more downforce but I remember. Coming, you know, even overtaking cars down on the apron. If you came across a gaggle of five or six cars, you know, squabbling over the same piece of banking, I, I went and um AL still talks to me about that. I don't know if it was 88 or 90, if I'm honest, but I came across them and I was in a hurry. It must have been 88, I think. I was in a real hurry to get through because we were coming back in the year that we did win it. And Um, coming back through the field after a problem and I just took to the apron and (laughs) I saw this plume of dust coming up behind me and then hopped it back up onto the banking which shows my total ignorance of the challenges of of banking because I thought that was a perfectly normal thing to do and still AL comes up to me in the F1 paddock from time to time going I still can't believe you overtook me on the apron back in whenever it was so um, you know, we, we we took some liberties with the car, um, and we pushed it hard. And I think the truth is, Marshall, we were racing each other, the two cars, sixty yeah. and sixty-one. You know, obviously you got you got Davy Jones, Jan Lammers, and, and Andy Wallace in in the sixty-one, as you said, Price Cobb, John Nielsen, and me in the sixty. Um, and we were focused on each other. And as I, I do remember, when they came in for their for the Water issues. I'm thinking we've got this one covered, because actually, it's coming back to me now. The car appeared to be running hot and hot and hot, and a little bit hotter. And then it came back. the 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 temperature gauge came back. It was an analog gauge. And at that point, you think, okay, yeah, I think we're going to be okay. What that was the sign of is there was no water passing the sender Mm. at that point. Yeah, and. uh, basically, you'd run out of water at that point because you're you just getting a bit of a from this crazy little you know, gauge thinking, yeah, yeah, we've got this under control. And, and that was actually really the beginning of your problems.
0: So this race, we have an amazing 1-2 finish for the team. Obviously, mm-hmm. 1988, beautiful opening of that account with victory at Daytona as well yeah. and Le Mans. Then the team goes on granted this is a uh, TWR UK and USA coming together as usual at Le Mans in yeah. June yeah. follow that up with a 1-2 in France as well Daytona obviously you were uh, your car was second <clears throat> inverted that kindly at Le Mans with uh, <clears throat> a victory in 1990 I know this is there's no way to ask this or say it without it being obvious but in terms of career accomplishments uh a one-two finish for the team at the world's two biggest twenty-four hour races, uh, capped off with your victory that year at Le Mans. I don't know if I can think of a, a better year of endurance racing that might stand out for you.
3: No, eighty-eight worked quite well for me. Obviously, we started off, um, uh, and it is we. You, you don't, you never win a sports car race by yourself. Um, there's a lot of people behind you, and two other drivers in the cockpit. Um, but that. That was a good year because we started off, and I, as I said, I just adored driving for TWR USA. I just, I just fitted. I remember we had this launch in London, and then we got on Concord. Me and Eddie Cheever in '88, and then we got a private jet. I've never been so cold in my life. I'm sitting waiting on this PJ down to Talladega, which was a bit of an eye opener in a in, in an IMSA car. Um, Trying to trying to learn our way, and and by the end of the year, yeah, we I, I was the world sports car champion as well. So that was a and the Williams test driver, and I did a race for Williams. I think across the Atlantic fourteen times, uh, and then was lucky enough to win the championship in Fuji. So that that was pretty good. Um, annoyed, annoyed we didn't win a second Daytona, and I shouldn't be that annoyed after thirty years, but you but you are. Yeah, one tends to be. um, and then we got to Le Mans and we had a real fight on our hands and Tom Walkinshaw said to me on race morning um, I want you to go flat out in and we got to we got to break these Porsche's we got to break break them all somehow um and I'll keep a seat in the other car for you um which he did so I drove as hard as I could as long as I could uh in my car uh, and eventually it broke um and they hadn't you're only allowed to use three drivers. So they'd only used two two drivers in the other car, which was something I knew about. Uh, I don't think Tom had got around to telling Eliseo Salazar um, that that was the plan. So he hadn't been put in the other car. And that's why it ended up as a Cobb-Nielsen-Brundle victory. Um, but then the um, it got glazed front. Di- I jumped in it. It got glazed front discs on it, and it was missing fourth gear, oh. if I remember correctly. And I remember coming for my first pit stop. Tom came to the Tom Walkinshaw came into my view in front of the car, like thumbs up, thumbs down. I am like thumbs up. We'll be all right. We can we can get to this to the end, and we did. And we we had a fairly epic battle in that one as well. But it was just a great team, and it always makes you know. I used to say to the F one boys. Uh, Le Mans is, was not so many, not so much now. We've got twenty-one races, twenty-two races this season coming up. But Le Mans was the equivalent of a Formula One season in a day, and fifteen drivers, five cars, one hundred and thirty-five, one hundred and forty people. It was an epic undertaking. So to get those cars to the end of that sort of distance in a day, with the with the average speed that we had of what over one hundred and thirty miles an hour or something, so just outstanding performance. Um, And and that, that's how it, that's how we went. So it was another one of those, you know, give it all you've got and let's see how far we can get.
0: Let's close on this, Martin. So the other aspect that I love of this season for you, and especially the win at Le Mans, it's this beautiful trio uh, of Denmark's John Nielsen, definite American and Price Cobb, and a Brit in yourself. Tell me about the three of you working together. Back then, I seem to recall you guys having uh, a fairly good time and enjoying one another's company considerably. But what do you recall from this this pretty effective trio from three very different places?
3: Yeah, I didn't know Price that well. I got to know him. Great guy. Um, I hope he's doing well. I haven't seen or heard from him for a very long time, must MFA. Um, Super John, John Nielsen, the Viking. Uh, we basically, I mean, he whenever we got exhausted just put john back in the car um and he i raced with him a lot in imsa we won uh, quite a lot of races together oh yeah and um and he was just great fast and funny um we were yeah we had some some funny stories to tell through the through those years so i knew john very well um but i didn't know price that well but we ended up uh yeah, we had some great, great results together. And it's really nice people remember this 30 years later, frankly, uh, and kind of you to even do a feature on it. So, yeah, But they were they were pioneering days in many respects, weren't they?
0: All I want, Martin, is for us to take a mid-race break at the Rolex 24 and just let one of those XJR-12s run for a few laps, just so we can hear <laughs> six liters yeah. of V12 glory. Uh, it will, yeah. For those who weren't there back in the day, boy, that the sound of the machines just can, will always reverberate. So memorable, beautiful cars, a Castrol livery, just uh, I, the mm. darn near perfection. I would say.
3: Yeah, I've got I've got a Sprint spec one sitting beside me here in the office. It's a big a big scale model. Tony Dow sent me actually, absolutely beautiful. And I drove the Le Mans car one, the uh, the Le Mans version. Just um, a few months ago with my son, Alex, we, yes. um, Gary Pearson got the car out and we took it around Silverstone and, you know, it just felt like putting on a comfortable pair of shoes or something. It was just absolutely brilliant. And if you think they sound great outside, you should hear them inside as well. A little bit cammy, a little bit top endy, but um, they sound great inside, but there's, there's nothing, you're right, there's nothing to match that beautiful wail as it comes past you.
0: Well, I'm drunk with delight from history, Mr. Brundle. Thank you, as always, for taking some (laughs) time. Thanks, Marshall. Thanks for calling me. Look forward to seeing you soon, hopefully. Thanks once again to Tony, Davey, and Martin for spinning some good yarns here. Hope you enjoyed this and following it as soon as I can get it done. Another 1990 memory, this being from the class winners in GTO from Jack Roush Racing. If the overall victory stories were fun, they're even crazier in GTO. So that's next up to close out our retro features for this year's Rolex 24 at Daytona. All right. I am Marshall Pruitt. This is a Marshall Pruitt podcast brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers. Thank you for listening.